The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? In her speech at Mansion House last week, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss gave a warning to China: "Countries must play by the rules," she said, and that includes China. It's a charge often levied against the country, where accusers say that it doesn't respect the international rules-based order. China, on the other hand, says that this rules-based order is essentially Western-led and with the rules written by the West as well. So who's right? Joining me to discuss today on this episode of Chinese Whispers is Professor Rana Mitter, who is a historian at the University of Oxford, and his latest book is China's Good Wall. I'm also joined by Yu Jie, who's a senior research fellow at Chatham House. Now, to start with, perhaps you could outline what are the major organizations that China plays a part in, and which are the multilateral relationships it wants to enter into in the near future. Well, it's a very big question. Let me begin with the basics. I think is the organization that China is very much interested in joining, and also has performed well, and also holding a big sway at the United Nations. The reason for that is. Of this key pillar of the Chinese foreign policy, it is essentially to seeking the international recognition, and therefore back to October 1971, when the People's Republic of China returned to the seat for the Permanent Security Council, and that was actually considered as being a milestone for the Chinese foreign policy. And therefore, ever since then, China has treated United Nations as being one of the very key platforms to. Extend its influence and also try to testify its new ideas. So, like for example, on this Belt and Road Initiative, and lately the so-called Global Development Initiative has also been tested at United Nations. So, China would consider this is a particular very important organization for China, and also for a second reason that since the obsession with national sovereignty and territorial integrity, again another key pillar of the Chinese foreign policy. And that's really made up China's key interest with United Nations. Now, other organizations such as World Trade Organization, again, this would be considered as being another milestone for the Chinese foreign policy, and also China return to the global economic system. That China considering join WTO, it is not only an economic recognition, but more significantly, it is a political recognition. For Beijing itself, now different strands of international organizations mostly focusing on international economic governance, and China is very much interested in joining. I think part of reason and also the key argument that China has been making the past year is that post the Second World War international order, it is essentially a rule written by the Western powers. It does need to be updated. 
it does need to have countries like China or India, for example, in order to reflect those rules and orders, reflect into the reality of twenty-first century international politics. So I think that's one of the key arguments China has used to join any other international organizations these days, from economic governance into space management, for example. Mm. And Rana, on all of those organisations, can we first start with the United Nations? As Jia points out, is probably the most important one. How is it that China, a country that is so often accused of disrespecting international rules and norms, how is it that China came to hold a seat on the UN Security Council, which gives it veto power? And not just any seat, Cindy, because if you listen to the words of top Chinese leaders, President Xi Jinping and Foreign Minister Wang Yi. You'll hear them say over and over again. Indeed, I heard it myself at the Munich Security Conference、uh, just before the pandemic in February 2020. Foreign Minister Wang Yi pointed out that China was not just a signatory to the UN Charter in April 1945, but the first signatory. It was something of a trick of the alphabetic light, of course, in a sense. But it's still an important point. In other words, China is looking to claim ownership of its foundation status in the UN. So, what's that all about? Well, we have to remember. That the United Nations was, in a sense, the successor of a somewhat less successful organization in the pre-war era, the League of Nations. Again, it's become famous because it failed to stop Hitler in Europe and it failed to stop Japan expanding in in Asia. But nonetheless, China was actually a very central member of the League of Nations, and that was the first sort of training, you might say, that China received in first of all how to work in an international organization, and secondly, quite frankly, how harsh the wider world could be when those organizations didn't work, because The League failed to stop to reverse the invasion of, of Manchuria, the northeastern part of China, by Japan in the 1930s. So fast forward a little bit to World War II, when China, alongside the British Empire and the United States, fought against Japan in the Asian theatre of World War II. And by the time that war was coming to an end, before it had even ceased, though, the Agreement had been made, not least by President Roosevelt of the United States, who was very keen to create that kind of new world order that Yujie was actually talking about in a in a sense, and to make sure that China was part of it. Well, why China? Well, let's remember that in 1945, when the war came to an end, China was a very very unusual sort of state. Why? Because it was the only state, pretty much, in Asia that was. Essentially sovereign, that was essentially free and independent. Don't forget that 1945 meant liberation for lots of European peoples, but for lots of Asian peoples—Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaya, wherever you want to name—they basically went back into European colonialism. So China was unusual that way. And Roosevelt, who was a big opponent of imperialism, or at least imperialism that wasn't carried out by the United States, was keen to make sure that China played a kind of keystone role. So what he did was to arrange that five big powers—the Soviet Union, the United States. The United Kingdom, British Empire, China, and France, which managed to get itself back at the top table. Well done, France in 1945. Bit of a stretch, but we'll go with that. <laughs> Nonetheless, these five states came together essentially as the five members of the new United Nations organization, as it became known, that would have veto powers in the new Security Council. And again, you know, this is a structure that still exists to this very day. So China's status as a wartime victor. As one of the very few, if only non-Western states that had its own sovereignty, even India wasn't independent at that stage. Don't forget,、mm-hmm. and also, and this is the crucial thing that changes, as an American ally, don't forget that China wasn't the China we know today. It was the China of nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jieshi, 
And although his relationship with the Americans was pretty toxic on a day-to-day -day basis, he hated most of the American military people who were sent to, to work with him, he did feel that the Chinese state in the post-war era, the nationalist state, would have to be oriented towards America. And America basically saw at that point China as another vote on this United Nations Security Council top table, with only the Soviet Union being on the other side and China really being on the American side. How fate changed that particular uh, dispensation as we know but at the time that was the logic fascinating and Jia, back to today then how, how does china tend to behave on the un security council and ending other multilateral organizations is there a particular approach to multilateralism with chinese characteristics for example are they more unwilling to intervene even on humanitarian grounds compared to other countries for example western countries are, are there characteristics we can pick out there I wouldn't really argue a sense of Chinese characteristics. Actually, I'd like to use analogy of French word, choice by a la carte. So China makes and choose and to see whatever the subject and the elements of that particular international issues would be interested in China and would be according to China's preference. And therefore, China would begin to participate enthusiastically, like what you have mentioned on humanitarian assistance and on peacekeeping and so on and so forth. So this is a part of what China is trying to do. So it's not exactly overthrown the existing international order as a wholesale, but choose very carefully on which part that China is seeking to change it. I mean, I can give you an example. One argument that China has been keep arguing within IMF and within World Bank is to increasing the voting share of China precisely because of the size of the Chinese economy and also because of the weight of the Chinese economy. So what China essentially is trying to do is to adding a few chairs on the table and to make sure you have a different voices being presented on the table is not just university led by the United States. Now, the second reason why China seems to be have this very much in favor of the United Nations, it is it seems to be these days, that's the organization that United States cannot single-handedly dictate the terms and conditions. Instead, that has to be shared by many other countries, many other countries which holding different views compared with the United States. So I think that's a part of the reason why China would very much interested in and continues to work within UN. So I think that's the second reason. Now, the third element in here seems to be is that if China realized that certain organizations that cannot be achieving its own means and end, and then at the end of the day, what China is trying to do is China is going to creating a new international organizations for its own purpose and for its own need. But how new that organization has been so far, I think it's too early to draw the conclusion. The most obvious example I can give in here is the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. But if you carefully look into the terms and conditions of AIB, you wouldn't find much difference compared with, for example, IMF or World Bank and so on and so forth. And even the personnel appointment seems to have a very similar profile. So China's strategy in here, again, is a bit of mixed bag and cherry picking, really to go through whatever is in China's favor. And, and also creating these parallel organizations like the AIIB where it suits it. Well, creating the parallel international organization, but however, that would really take time to yielding any meaningful result. I think the main strategy for China, it is really work within the existing international organization, but try to choose areas very carefully where China can extend its influence. I think most notoriously, 
then you would say economic governance that China would prefer playing a much bigger role. But when they come to the issues on human rights, when they come to issues on ethnic minority rights, I think China has decided to quietly silence and walk away from those issues. Mm. Rana. It's worth noting that at this particular moment, because Ukraine is so much in the news, that there's a real difference in the UN tactics of Russia, which is, of course, another P5 Security Council member, and China. China's behaviour is pretty much exactly as Eugene has put it, that it looks to occupy and fill the spaces that exist in the UN and the structures there and make sure that they try and conform to interests that China has, just as, to be fair, the United States does on on its side. Russia's interest seems to be much more in terms of really breaking the system down. It's much more nihilistic, in a sense, because Russia perceives itself essentially as a country that's really, you know, at the end of its tether in terms of the international system, whereas China still sees plenty of opportunities to actually grow and expand its status in the UN as a means of boosting its own strength at home. So, Russia and China's goals are really quite different when they're in that organisation. I totally agree. And also, if you're judging by the utility of abstention has been used by China and Russia, you've noticed quite significant utility in here. On the one hand, that China seems to use abstention far more than the veto power compared with Russia. Mm. So I've noticed quite a key difference here between Beijing and Moscow. One little anecdote, the morning that we're recording this is the morning that, as Secretary-General Guterres of the United Nations is in Kiev, the Russians have, it would appear, carefully but pretty pointedly fired rockets at buildings very close to where he is. In the unlikely event we had a parallel situation with China, there's no way they'd do that because that same Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, is the same man who's basically made sure that China's own goals to do with what they call the community of common destiny, in other words, Xi Jinping's personal project for global development, is included amongst the UN's Millennium Development Goals. In other words, they know how to work with the UN Secretary General. They definitely don't want to blow him up. Mm. Why does any of this matter? Because there is a school of thought that says multilateralism, you know, it's nice to get countries on side, but international organisations at the end of the day don't matter. The very notion of international law, some people say, doesn't make sense because there is no international government to enforce that at a gunpoint, essentially, which is how national laws (laughs) are policed. So why does China care? Is it just about being able to say claim legitimacy on like a kind of intellectual level with this idea of the and the right to speak or is there more something more hard more solid than that well it's not just Yuquan. it is not just the right to speak but it's about projecting different kind of power that sense of power the so-called discursive power that china will be have the ability to shape the international debate at platforms like un from the very beginning of that debate and i think what That is exactly what the generations of Chinese leaders really wanted to achieve. I mean, ever since 1954, when John Lai came to the first Geneva Convention, Geneva meeting, and that's exactly the generations of Chinese leaders wanted to insert that discursive power. And therefore, according to that discursive power, to extend China's influence, both in economic and in political means. Now, there's also another element in here is obviously the, the, the Taiwan question. And essentially what the PRC rightly felt by gaining a status within the UN would essentially block Taiwan's accession to any of the international organizations and therefore eliminating the space of Taiwan to be able to operate like a de facto state. So I think there's also a consideration of the Taiwan consideration within it too. 
And of course, that's been very, very successful because, <laughs> as you've suggested, in 1971, the PRC was able to get Taiwan kicked off the UN Security Council as well. Rana, what, what are your thoughts on what benefits China gets from being a member of these organisations? I think actually China has no intention whatsoever of trying to destroy the system because the answer to the question, you know, why would it be of benefit to China to actually try at least to make some effort to obey international law is that the alternative is the 19th century or indeed the 18th century where you get a period when powerful countries simply go and snatch bits of each other's territory, invade each other, occupy each other. And while, of course, today's China is a very strong country, it's one that has a huge military, a huge economy, the mentality of many of its elites is still very much tied up with the idea that China, within just about living memory, has been invaded and attacked from outside on so many occasions that you just never know. And that any structures that can help prevent that are important. So those could be structures like, you know, building a big military, and that's an obvious one. But also making sure that there is a robust system of international law, but... And here's the kicker. It's a system of law which must more and more come under norms that China finds acceptable. So again, it goes back to what Eugene was saying at the beginning and we've been coming back to, which is that it really is not the case that China, in most cases, wants to break down international systems of law or norms or any of those sorts of things. It's that it wants to redefine or occupy them in ways that will suit China's interests. One quick example. One of the most turbulent but also important areas for international regulation in the near future is going to be on the internet and the question of whether it's the kind of very open, interchangeable internet that we have seen in most of the world, including actually to some extent in China for the last two or three decades, or whether China will get the benefit of what it thinks of as internet sovereignty. In other words, a much stronger state-directed sense that China, Russia, other countries will be able to decide from a top-down level, at the national level, what does and doesn't appear through the net. Now, to be able to do this, you obviously can't do it simply within one domain. You have to have some sort of international regulation that holds these things together. And we'll note that the number of Chinese citizens who have become heads of major international organisations, the International Telecommunications Union, which sounds old-fashioned, but of course actually has an awful lot of connections with very 21st century technology, is an example of how getting Chinese interests and norms to the top of these international organisations is now an ongoing task. And many would argue, of course, perfectly legitimate if the Americans or the British want to get their people to the top of the tree, and it's perfectly fine that they should do, there's no particular reason why a very large, powerful economy like China shouldn't also seek to do the same thing. It's a question of what they do when they get there. Well, actually, I wonder if you can give some of that context of what the British and the American sides do, because, I mean, this is a podcast about China, not about the West. But I think in this sense, this comparison is interesting and not in a what about a way, nobody respects international law anyway, blah, 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 blah. But just to say, what are the usual, you know, patterns of behavior for great powers in international organizations, you know, because the case is often made against China that it doesn't respect international rules and norms. But We've suggested a few times in this podcast so far that Brits and the Americans do similar. What are those? Can you give some examples of that? I think probably the major difference is, I mean, first of all, not that there aren't occasions when Western countries do something very similar. So to take disputes over the South China Sea, I mean, that's one example that comes up over and over again. It is the case that China had a judgment made against it at the International Court in The Hague in 2016 that basically argued that China's quite extensive claims really to most of the maritime surface of the of, of the South China Sea were, were not valid, not backed up by history. And China basically ignored that and said, no, we're not going to accept that. 
However, it's also noticeable that the United Nations Charter on Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, under which it was arbitrated, has never actually been ratified by the United States in the first place. So there's a clear differentiation there. So is that a clear example of, you know, kind of tit for tat or what about, you know, is it all, all the same? Well, I don't think that's quite the case, because I think it's fair to say that at the moment, the broad sweep, if you say that, you know, whatever it is, 85% of the international laws that are carried out by what likes to style itself the rules-based international systems, in other words, kind of the Western world and other countries that use those operations, is that there is an effective feedback mechanism domestically. So when the United States breaks international law or norms or, you know, commits human rights abuses in Iraq or whatever, there are governmental structures, there are people in Congress, there are people in the press, there are people in wider civil society whose business it is, and they're very, very vocal about it, to make sure that the United States is brought to account on that. That doesn't always mean that the United States flips over and changes its mind. Quite often it doesn't at the governmental level. And we all know there's plenty of flaws and hypocrisy in the system there. But those systems do allow feedback mechanisms that actually, I think, in a, in a way, are part of what keeps the international system running. At the moment, China doesn't really have satisfactory mechanisms to allow that to happen because the domestic sphere of China is so heavily controlled. In other words, if you wanted to say the United States committed war crimes in Iraq, you know, you may get attacked by some people, but you're free to do that, basically. If you want to say the United States did nothing wrong in Iraq, as some of the lawyers in the Bush administration, number two Bush administration said, you're obviously free to do that too and debate it. In China, you can certainly make a very strong argument that China should take, you know, the whole of the South China Sea it's much harder in the Chinese public sphere to make a negative statement that actually China shouldn't have that control over the South China Sea within the Chinese domestic sphere. And that means in think tanks, it means in international relations discussion, it means in government as a whole. It doesn't mean that discussions never happen, and sometimes they happen behind closed doors, but it does mean that the element of public input, which we now know, and I think all international relations theorists would point out, actually is a very important part of shaping foreign policy, including in international organisations, doesn't exist in China in the way that it does in many other major actors in international society. So for me, that's a large part of the difference. Yeah, and of course, you can vote out the governments that you deem are contravening these international laws, as we did with the Blair government in this country. So, Rana, as we've already discussed, uh, the China that engaged with the international community at the beginning of the 20th century was the Republic of China, you know, led by essentially a Europhile or Americophile like Jiang Jieshi, Chiang Kai-shek. And in some ways, you can see the Chinese Communist Party as created out of a reaction against the international community. We've talked about on this podcast before about the May 4th movement and the disillusionment that the CCP had with that. So I wondered, how did that colour the CCP's attitude to multilateralism in its early years? And why is it that when they came to power, they did still want to be a part of these international organisations? I think that, and Yujie was saying this earlier on, that China has always had in the modern era a really, really strong urge towards being treated on equal standing with other nations in the wider international society. And in a sense, it's a perfectly reasonable thing for China to want to aspire to. But it proved very difficult in the early 20th century because essentially China was a pretty weak country in terms of its economy, in terms of its military, in terms of the vulnerability of its its borders. And therefore, I think when the communists came to power in the 1940s, 
what they would ideally have liked to have done was to create a system which had as many different... And we used the term multipolar, and the word pole always reminds me of a tent, which is, you know, held up by lots of different poles. And I think that's not necessarily a misleading metaphor in terms of what I think that they would have wanted to do. By the way, the same was true of their nationalist, Chiang Kai-shek, Guomindang predecessors, who also signed treaties with all sorts of countries, including the Soviet Union, to try and create that sense that they weren't beholden to any one particular country. They were closer to the US, but they didn't want to be wholly dependent on them either. And ditto actually with the Chinese communists, who were very, very close to the Soviet Union, particularly under Stalin, but did not want to simply be another kind of Eastern European vassal state in the way that Czechoslovakia, Poland and the other countries that emerged as part of the Yalta process from 1945 became. That was not the intention that Mao had. He had not spent, you know, decades fighting out in the caves and fields of China to essentially become merely a plaything of Stalin. The problem was that during the Cold War, I mean, by definition, it was essentially a bipolar conflict. The Chinese found themselves, first of all, being placed on the side of the Soviet Union because the Soviets were their strong socialist allies, but also because the United States, in the shape actually of mostly Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State of the US at the, at the time in the 50s, refused to recognise the People's Republic. So they weren't really put in a position where they could develop more poles to actually attach to. And actually, um, you did mention earlier in 1954 when Zhou Enlai, the suave foreign minister of China, went to Geneva. On that occasion, it was a little bit staged, but nonetheless, it was famously the case that Zhou Enlai tried to put out his hand for John Foster Dulles to shake it when they were supposed to be discussing the future of Vietnam, and Dulles refused to do it. And that's one of the reasons why Nixon shook the same man's hand, Zhou Enlai, in 1972, nearly 20 years later, when he visited Beijing as an apology for the snub that had been put in that case. But from the 1960s, when the Chinese basically found that they also had fallen out with the Soviets, they were essentially left friendless. And that is part of the answer to your question. If you want to ask, why does China today have, I think, almost an obsessive interest in trying to find different poles, you know, the global south, some kind of alliance with the Russians, it's not really an alliance, but a kind of a friendship, which has gone a bit bad because of Ukraine, connections with ASEAN and the Southeast Asia, the Belt and Road Initiative, all these rather different sorts of things. Why? Because if they, you go back to the 1960s, which is well within the living memory of many of the top leaders, the Cultural Revolution, China was almost alone. It didn't have any poles on which to depend its foreign policy. The one exception, and this is something that may or may not have you know, solved the problem, was that they did have an agreement with Albania. Albania was, in the midst of the 1960s, the only country with which there was a kind of relationship of fraternal brotherhood with the then dictator of Albania, Enver Hoxha. And going back to a situation where the only mates you have are in Tirana is not something <laughs> I think that uh, today's Chinese communists, they're not likely to ha- happen for a variety of reasons, but that sort of muscle memory is still there. Jia, let's talk about the Global South. I wonder if you can discuss how important it is for China to get the Global South on side when it comes to its foreign policy, because China likes to portray itself as this flag bearer of the world against the West. Okay. Importantly, I mean, it is not just the ideas of having a vote and also having a vote in the UN General Assembly. So as I said, one vote, one country, one vote. And that certainly is the strategy for China to make sure its own agenda, its own global agenda got represented. That's one thing. Now, secondly, I think it's also to do with the national identity of China itself. It has constantly declared itself as being a developing country and therefore should work together more closely with a developing country. I mean, I can give you a clear example. For, for example, while we're talking about the debt relief measures and the G20 framework or, and the Paris Club framework, 
And China has always so vehemently defended and refused to join the Paris Club and led by IMF. The reason it is not for economic reason, but is actually for largely geopolitical reason and also for ideological reason that China felt itself by being a developing country, it should not really join the so-called rich countries club and therefore tell what the other developing countries what to do. So that is one layer of this consideration of the so-called global south. Now the second layer is that this is also to do with China's particular geography, China's particular geopolitics. That this is a country share. By the border of fifteen different countries, most of those、um, countries have the firstly had a border dispute with China, and secondly, those countries mostly developing countries as well. And what China is essentially to do, it is to creating that sense of economic interdependence with those neighbors, and in order to secure its own neighborhood, in order to to facilitate the domestic economic development. So I think that's the second reason. Now the very third reason, but it's more minor reason, that China perhaps would like to use the international organization as a vehicle, and also letting those global south to join certain initiatives set up by China according to China's own particular ideology. But obviously, this comes with a far less success, and this would also come into far less、um, small testament for China's case. But dear, I wonder how reciprocal these relationships really are. Is in how multilateral are they really, and how much is it with China, you know, at the centre? Because when, whether we're talking about vaccine diplomacy or whether we're talking about Belt and Road Initiative, it's essentially China having bilateral relationships with each of these global South countries individually, and a lot of the time is China dictating the terms on that or influencing how that is done, rather than the kind of idealistic view that China is also one of you, one of us kind of notion. Do you think that's fair? Sure, I think again it's a really、uh, evolving process. Recently, what we have seen so far, what we have seen so far is that very much the Belt and Road Initiative. It is essentially China led and China determined the terms and conditions. But however, if you notify the recent mega trade deal that happened among the Asia Pacific Economy Regional Cooperation on Economic Partnership, this is essentially a trade pact led by ASEAN and not necessarily led by China. And China simply by being the major beneficiary for this trade pact, and essentially China led ASEAN to carry on its own way. It doesn't want to be seen as a very much China-led initiative. Now the second example is recently when Xi Jinping put forward to this idea of the so-called global development initiative, in conjecture with the Millennium Goal or SDG that UN has put forward to. Again, judging from the word. It doesn't sounds like a very much China-led initiative at all, because I think what China have learned in the past from the past mistakes that if any initiative only led by China bilaterally at the bilateral level, the chance of success will be much lower than merge itself into some kind of international platform, multilateral vehicles in order to pursue is to advance its own interest. So I think it's an evolving process, and what China is being trying to do right now, it is not exactly just exist within the bilateral level. So I would argue actually it's a coexistence at the bilateral level, but also at the multilateral level. And finally, Rana, I just wanted to get a quick history lesson from you about the development of some of these things that we're talking about—international law, or one of the things that China is often accused of disrespecting international norms and rules. It's disrespect for human rights, for example, in in the Xinjiang issue, and then using its power to sanction those who who essentially criticise it. 
But a lot of these notions, at least in my primitive understanding, are Western-oriented, Western-originated concepts in any case. I mean, international law, for example, comes from the notion of Westphalian and human rights. I don't think has a concept in Confucianism or any of the Chinese intellectual histories. Am, am I right in saying that? Could you give us some flesh on that? Well, I think there's two parts to the answer to that, really, Cindy. The first is that the idea that Western-derived universalist systems are alien to China would come as a great surprise to President Xi Jinping, who likes to state frequently that he is, quotes, a 21st century Marxist, because the last time I checked, Karl Marx's thought didn't really emerge from uh, the uh, depths of Shandong province either. In other words, perhaps it depends what kind of Western universalism that's actually that on true. offer at that particular time. And it's the liberal sort that I think isn't currently in fashion at the moment. I think what we know from the history of the late 19th century onwards is that a whole variety of global systems are driven by the expansion of European empires because that is the history of the world that we've been dealt in the last 200 years or so. What we also now know, and I think really should not underestimate, is how fully all of those systems were shaped by actors outside the European sphere, the global south, to use the phrase that we were using earlier in the conversation. Just a very few examples, particularly from the mid-20th century, that deal with the issues we've been talking about. It's become well known, but I think it's just worth saying again, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR, from 1948, was the product of the input of an awful lot of people. Eleanor Roosevelt mm. has become pretty famous. But at least two of the most distinguished were the Chinese philosopher, P.H. Zhang, and uh, Zhang Pengjun and Chun, and also the Lebanese and certainly not Western lawyer and philosopher Charles Malik. Also a great inspiration as it happened to the critic Edward Said, who would later become very, very famous. In other words, the understanding that there had to be a cross-cultural interaction that would shape these ideas existed very early on. One other example, the point of origin, you might say, the kind of original moment of creation that led to all the organisations such as GAPS, the World Trade Organisation, and others that we've talked about about the present day, much of that originated in the Bretton Woods conferences of the late 1940s. And again, there's a brilliant book by Eric Halina called Forgotten Foundations of, of Bretton Woods, which points out that a whole variety of countries, including China, but also actually many of the countries of Latin America were really instrumental in shaping the norms on trade and on international organisations during that particular period. And we shouldn't forget that actually in the early part of the 20th century, before they came to grief through many of their own actions, the Japanese, as probably the only sovereign, powerful, non-Western power in, in the world, actually had a lot of influence on international law and at least significant parts of what would later then go on to become parts of the Chinese constitution, at some remove, are actually drawn from things that the Meiji reformers, the Japanese reformers, of the late 19th century put forward. So although there is an interest sometimes on the Western side in saying, we invented all this rah, 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 and on the Chinese side in saying, we had nothing to do with this, so we don't have to obey any of it, actually, the reality is just so much more complex and interactive. And I will leave you the final thought on that, which is that if you want to look at outside, you know, the Confucian tradition, the two biggest thinkers in Beijing today, they're both called Karl. One of them is called Karl Marx. One is called mm -hmm. Karl Schmitt. They're both German philosophers, one of the 19th, one of the 20th century. They have rather different sorts of views, but they are amongst the hottest thinkers in the Chinese thinking going on in Beijing today. Well, not just that, and even given Beijing's this sense of obsession on national sovereignty and territorial integrity, we could really drive back to 16th century by Thomas Hobbes. I mean, I do not recognize any single country in this world considering the concept of sovereignty as much as what China has adopted, really a Hobbesian view of national sovereignty. So I think it's actually a mixed bag and learning on both sides, really. It is not exactly a clear cut, it's the Western or East. 
Brilliant. Rana Mitter and Yujie, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.